morning, church. All right. Children are dismissed. <clears throat> Today we are in our third sermon of five of the sermon within a sermon series called The Invitation to Retreat. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is A.D. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and um, I'm going to do a brief recap of the previous two weeks that we've been in this series, just for those who have not um, been present, or for those who have not paid attention. <laughs> Hopefully that's none of you guys. Uh, I'm joking. <laughs> um, to kind of give us a, a context for what we'll be talking about today. And so the whole concept behind the invitation to retreat is that the busy pace of life that we often keep hinders us from being able to really be present with the Lord. Um, again, we've always had, uh, we've talked about this illustration where if you're talking to somebody and they're constantly on their cell phone, they don't have your undivided attention. And so this whole series is really centered around how can we be unhindered in our presence with the Lord? How can we be focused in our presence with the Lord and allowing ourselves this space to linger in the presence of God? And so we defined this retreat as an extended block of time where you make yourself exclusively available to God alone in a different and less distracting place where your focus is on hearing directly from God. And so we talked about the why. Why is this necessary? We talked about oftentimes our time with God can be a time where we're filling our heads with knowledge, but our hearts are really not engaged with God. We talked about the fact that the deepest change that we need, we can't bring that about in and of ourselves. Our human effort is not sufficient enough to produce deep, effective change. And then we also talked about the fact that we become what we behold. Whatever our heart affections are looking to, we become that. We become that. And so the more that we are able to allow ourselves to be present fully in God's presence, he begins to transform us in that place. We talked about how to prepare for a retreat. We talked about places that you can go to for a retreat here in Orlando. And we also talked about what you can do on retreat too as well. The main focus being on listening, even though there may be certain activities that you do that the focus should be on listening to God. And then we closed that first sermon with the fact that God desires to engage with us. God desires to meet with us in that place, number one. Number two, that he also initiates and he gives us promptings for us to be in that space. And then number three, we talked about he, the fact that he teaches us directly. In other words, we don't need some of the other resources like commentaries and things like that. Not to say that those things are bad, but that God can actually teach you directly in that space. Last week's sermon, we talked about self-examination, and we defined that as us being able to see ourselves as God sees us. And we talked about the reason why that's necessary, number one, because we can't see ourselves clearly. We have corrupted lenses with which we view the world and which we view ourselves, and we need God's perspective in order to kind of keep things in the proper, uh, to have a proper perspective. We talked about number two that self-examination enables us to walk in the freedom that Christ provides. That as people who are subject to sin, we need to be freed up. And so self-examination is a means whereby that can happen. And then we also talked about the fact that self-examination also helps us to be able to help others. 
right? Matthew talks about the fact that, you know, you should not judge uh, hypocritically and that we should take the speck out of our own eye before we attempt to take the speck out of another person's eye. And then finally, we close with um, the examine, which is a way of reviewing our day through the lens of God. And these are all things that we could do in our times alone with God or on retreat where we can have that time alone with God so that we can review our day with God's lens, with his perspective. Today, we will be talking about prayer. Uh, This is the third sermon. And to be honest with you, and I don't know if any of you guys can relate, but for the majority of my life, I struggled with prayer. I struggled with prayer. I grew up in a Christian home, so I was introduced to a lot of prayers. There was one that I used to say when I was younger. Um, It went, uh, Lord, I thank you for the way that thou has led me through the day. Savior, keep me in the night that I may see the morning light. From my heart, all evil take. All this I ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Pull my sheets and I would go to bed and I was good, right? Or you may be familiar with this one. God is great. God is good. Let us... Okay, so some of y'all struggle with prayer too. I see some of y'all was like, I don't know what the next word is, right? (laughs) So we we have these prayers that we would say. And for me, it almost seemed like prayer was almost like an hors d'oeuvre, if you will. It was kind of like a light appetizer, you know? It was always something that you did prior to something else, right? So we would pray before the word, or we would pray at the end of a Bible study, but it was kind of like a prayer, it was like a tag-along thing, you know? It's like an hors d'oeuvre, like it's not really meant to fill you up. It's just kind of something that you do before you do something else. And I don't know if that's been the experience for you, but when you assess your prayer life and your history with prayer, what kind of thoughts come to mind? Does it feel like you're talking to a family member that you know you're supposed to talk to, but you don't really enjoy it that much, you know, uh, or that awkward silence of talking to a stranger and you don't really quite know what to say next. I know for me, there were certain periods in life where I was more motivated to pray. You know, I didn't study for a test and I'm like, man, God, I need you to come through, you know, or there's somebody who was sick and there's a motivation to pray in those moments. But when it comes to, when it comes to the just because prayers, um, I, I have to admit that there was a certain lack of engagement that my heart had. I've often talked about the fact that for me, there was also a fatigue that I had in prayer. I've told this story before, and like my wife says, if you've heard it before, just pretend like you didn't hear it, right? Um, That there was a Bible camp that I had gone to some years back. Uh, Two guys had gone off on jet skis, and they were in the canals, South Georgia, and they got lost, and apparently they ran out of gas. And so um, at the time, I'm thinking, Georgia's close to Florida. I hope these brothers are saved because they might have some gators out there, you know? And, um, and so we got in a circle and we were praying. This is close to nighttime. And, you know, we're praying and we're praying. And about 20 minutes in, I'm like exhausted, you know? And a part of me is like, you know how you're, you know, you're praying in a circle and you kind of do one of these numbers where you kind of, you know, peek up to see, you know, is, is the prayer done here? And I remember at some point uh, leaving because I was just tired. And I'm like, man, I know how the disciples felt in the garden when they left Jesus because that tiredness can be a beast. And so there was a certain fatigue I could relate to as it relates to, to prayer. And for, I would say, a good portion of my life, there was just this sense of a lack of engagement when it came to prayer. 
And it really wasn't until a couple years ago that it occurred to me, or I discovered that prayer is a way that God reorients our hearts towards his. That it's a means whereby God reorients his heart towards his. I'm going to use a little bit of an illustration here. I am not going to play guitar and preach. I've never done that before, and today will not be my first day trying. So um, hopefully I'm okay on the cameras here. (laughs) Um, So this is a guitar. I want you to imagine for a moment that this is your heart, right? This is your heart, and then imagine that the strings on the guitar are your affections, right? And so with a guitar, for those of you guys who are not familiar with this particular instrument, it has six strings on it. Each one of these strings is supposed to be in a specific spot on the guitar. You can't put this string over here. You can't just put it in any order that you want. They have to be in a specific order. And once you put the strings on the guitar, they have to be tuned. And normally you tune it to a standard tuning, what's called a standard tuning, right? So each one of these strings has to be in a specific position and they have to be tuned. So once you put the strings on the guitar, you, you know, strike each string and you tune it with a tuner to standard tuning so that all of the strings are in proper um, uh, relative to to the the scale, um, the, the tuning, that they're all tuned so that you can play a song as it's supposed to be played. Now, there are a couple things that can affect the sound of the strings. When you first put on a pair of strings on a guitar, once you tune it up, it's going to immediately go out of tune once you start playing because the strings are still trying to get accustomed to the tension that you're putting on the guitar. Um, if somebody bumps up against the tuning keys, that's going to knock the guitar out of tune. Uh, temperature. We live here in Florida. If you leave your guitar in the car for about two hours, the guitar is going to be out of tune, right? Or conversely, if you're in a cold environment, that also affects the strings. Um, And so it's important that once you get up and you pick up a guitar, that the first thing you do is tune it. If you got big muscles like Anthony and you're hitting the guitar, then the guitar is obviously going to go out of tune, right? So the pressure with which you play also affects how the guitar plays because it's going to knock it out of tune. And so what I've found in my experience is that similar to a guitar, our heart affections constantly are being tugged with the issues of life. What are we going to eat today? How am I going to pay my bills? I got a flat tire. Stress at the job. Relational tension. Family issues. All of these different things are constantly plucking at our tuning keys, if you will, and we are susceptible to being out of tune every day. And so what I've found is that through prayer, God, in essence, is tuning our hearts toward him, or at least that's really what it's supposed to achieve and accomplish in our lives. And so then the question is, how do we know when we're out of tune? I mean, we can know when a person's out of tune when they're singing, right? You can very easily detect if a guitar is out of tune. And I start singing, you know that it's out of tune. One of the things that the scriptures talk about in what we call the Lord's Prayer, 
I think accurately describes what happens when we're out of tune. And so we're all familiar with it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first thing that happens that's an indication that we're out of tune is, first of all, that we lose sight of who God is. We lose sight of the fact that his name is hallowed. Number two, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we are out of tune, we become consumed with our own agenda. And it's not so much the will of God that we're concerned about, but we're trying to fix whatever's within our control so that things can go according to how we desire. Give us this day our daily bread. No longer are we relying on the resources that God provides, but we often try to rely on our own resources in order to accomplish what we desire. And forgive us for our debts. When we're out of tune, we tend to justify ourselves, or we may just even be totally oblivious to our own sins. As we forgive those who sin against us, there's an attitude of harshness. We're unforgiving towards other people. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We become more susceptible to our own flesh, to our own sins. And all these things happen when our hearts are not in tune with God. And so the central idea that is governing our talk today is that through prayer, our hearts become exposed to God's transforming presence, and he tunes our heart to his. That through prayer, our hearts become exposed to God's transforming presence, and he tunes our hearts to his. So first, we're going to start with, what do we see about Jesus in prayer in the Bible? First, Luke chapter 5. First, we know that Jesus prioritized his time alone with God in prayer. In essence, this was the whole first sermon, the invitation to retreat that we had a couple weeks ago, that Jesus prioritized his time alone with prayer. Luke chapter 5, verse 15 says this, and this is in the context of his plea that the miracles be kept a secret, and it says, Luke chapter 5, verse 15, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The ministry had to stop. At some point, the activity had to stop for him, and his priority was going to the Father to spend time in prayer. And again, it said that he often did this. So this wasn't just a one-off type of situation, that there was a cutoff period where he had to spend time alone in prayer with the Father. So Jesus prioritized his time of prayer alone with the Father. Number two, what do we know about Jesus in prayer? That Jesus was in constant fellowship with the Father. Jesus was in constant fellowship with the Father. John chapter 11, verse 41 reads, So they took away the stone, and this is when he had healed, uh, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always 
Not sometimes, but he always hears me. But I said this on, the, uh, on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So there was this sense in which God, was, uh, God and Jesus were constantly in this state of fellowship. And honestly, this is really what the horror of the cross was, even though as excruciating and painful as the cross was, the horror of the cross was the broken fellowship between the Father and the Son when Jesus took on the weight of the sin of the world. And so prayer is a means whereby we maintain our fellowship with God, that fellowship Jesus had perfectly with the Father. The third thing we see about Jesus in prayer is that Jesus was infuriated by the corruption in the house of prayer. If we had social media back then, this story that we're getting ready to read would be one of the things that's just like a meme on social media because we've never seen Jesus in rare form as we do in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we know the story where they put down the palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna to the King of Kings. And it says in Matthew chapter 21 that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The place where the nations were supposed to come to experience fellowship with the Father had now turned into a marketplace where there was a selling of all kinds of things. And so Jesus is furious because we know a place by its dominant activity, right? So if you were to go to, I don't know, to, to IHOP, and they said, oh, well, we're out of pancakes. Are you serious? Really? Or if you went to, to Disney and there, there were no Disney characters, all the princesses were gone. What are we doing here? This is what you're known for, Right? And Jesus is saying, my house should be called a house of prayer, like it should be characterized by this fellowship between you and me, between God and man. And whenever a place loses what it's supposed to be for, that is the height of corruption. And to take it even further, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that you are the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, to what degree does prayer characterize your and my life? Are we a temple where that fellowship exists between us and God? So what kind of prayer does Christ desire? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we first need to talk about the kind of prayer that God does not desire. And he makes this pretty clear in Matthew chapter 6. First of all, hypocritical prayer. Hypocritical prayer. This is prayer 
that is motivated by one's appearance before others. This might be the person that has his Bible open. He's got his Starbucks mug. He has to turn it so everybody sees it. Give somebody else the phone and says, take a picture, a picture of me. I'm, I, I got to pose like I'm, I'm really like deep into the study. Hashtag getting it in with Jesus. Right? Where it's about the optics of how we're perceived by others. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. I would make an argument that social media may be a part of the brand new uh, street corner, right? That they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They have received their reward. What reward is he talking about? I believe the reward that he's talking about is if your objective is to be seen by others, God will allow you to get your hand clap. Good job. We see you. Matter of fact, you might get some likes on Facebook too as well. Some people might like your videos. But what does God say? Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is, in, who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So I think the question is, whose reward do we want to get? Whose reward do we want to get? And do we actually trust God enough to do it his way? That the God who sees in secret will reward you. Hypocritical prayer. First of all, prayer that's motivated by one's appearance before others. It's the selfie prayer. Number two, hypocritical. Prayer that is motivated to get God's attention through wordiness. It's kind of like a manipulative kind of thing where we feel like the more that we throw up, is the more that he's going to respond. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so I think there's a difference between persistent prayer and the prayer that's talked about here where you're throwing up these words and you're thinking that because I can make this into a 20 or 30-minute prayer, just keep talking, then maybe I might get my way. And God is saying, I don't operate that way. Your prayer should not be motivated by being seen by others, and it shouldn't be a wordiness that's almost like a manip manipulative effort in order to get what you want. And so what kind of prayer does God desire from us? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, a couple verses later, Jesus actually describes this, the kind of prayer that Jesus desires from us. And verse 9 says, pray then like this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Point number one, that Jesus desires the kind of prayer that tunes my heart to a proper recognition of who God is. That it tunes my heart to a proper recognition of who God is. When we become consumed with our own world and our own agenda and our own problems, this clouds our ability to see God clearly. And it's only upon escaping and getting out of that space that we can truly enter into God's presence and recognize him for who he is. When I was growing up, we had a big china cabinet. I don't know if you guys had that when you guys were growing up. Um, I know some of your younger people probably are like, what is a china cabinet? We don't even, (laughs) you know? But this is one of the most revered things in our home, right? And you better not bump into that china cabinet because once the dishes start shaking, you're in trouble, right? And you only use these dishes on special occasions, which was pretty much like Thanksgiving or Christmas. But for the other months of the year, those things were shut up and you did not use them, you know, to pour out your cereal or whatever. You would get like, you would get spanked (laughs) if you did that. You didn't mess around with the china cabinet, right? And so there's this sense of being set apart. When it talks about God's name being hallowed, it has this sense of reverence. Like you don't do certain things with the china that you would with your, I don't know, your, your plastic bowls or your, you know, your, your paper plates or whatnot. It was the same with my grandmother. She was a very, um, you, you just didn't fool around in her presence, right? <laughs> there certain things that you just did not do, you know, hats off, take your shoes off, yes ma'am, no ma'am, you know, you just, you just adopted a certain way of behaving because she commanded that kind of respect, And so it's the same thing when you're talking about hallowed be thy name. This is a certain reverence that you give to God because you recognize your position in relationship to him. Hebrews chapter 11 puts it this way, that anyone who comes to him must believe, first of all, that he exists, number one, and number two, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So when we approach God in prayer, there's a certain reverence that we have. And when we're consumed with our own agenda and our own problems, it's difficult for us to do that. And so Jesus, first of all, desires that kind of prayer that, first of all, tunes us to a proper recognition of who God is. Point number two, Jesus desires the kind of prayer that tunes my heart to yearn for God's reign and will to be done more than my own. That Jesus desires the kind of prayer that tunes my heart to yearn for God's reign and his will to be done more than my own. This is a statement of surrender. This is a statement that says, I know things are not going the way that I want them to, but I am going to surrender this to you because I recognize who you are. This is a desire that God's will would be pervasive throughout the world, that I'm not, no longer consumed with my own inventory. And, you know, some, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not consumed with my own agenda. 
I find that for many of us, the, the will of God is almost like an afterthought. You know, it's like after I've exhausted all of these different options, okay, fine, Lord, what is it that you want? What's your will? Right? And for many of us, that's the case where we pursue other options and then God has to break us down so that we are able to get to this point of surrender. And so Jesus is saying that I desire the kind of prayer that reflects that the will of God is my heartbeat, that that's the first thing that drives me to God, this desire for his will to be done. And as we surrender to him, that's a means whereby we actually are able to experience this kingdom life that he has to offer. Point number three. Jesus desires the kind of prayer that tunes my heart to depend daily on God to provide me with all I need for him. If you're like me, I don't like to see my phone below 100%. I just don't. You know, if, if I'm at 92, I'm like, I, I need, where's the charger? I need a fast charge. And so this type of prayer is a daily dependence on God to give me everything that I need. Psalm chapter 145, verse 15 says this, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. There are certain things we wake up with every morning. It could be, I don't know, a parched throat and you just have this desire just to get a cup of water. Whatever that is, if it's your, your stomach that's growling when you wake up, and the first thing you want to do is to satisfy that hunger, this is what, God is, this is what Jesus is saying in this prayer, that it's more than just a statement. It's a state of heart that you wake up with this hunger for him to provide you with everything that you need for today. This whole concept of daily bread really comes from the Old Testament. And you're familiar with the story of the Israelites when they were um, leaving Egypt, where God provided for them through manna. And the only time that he did not provide that daily was the day before the Sabbath, where he said, your rest is way too important, and I'm going to give you a double portion. But otherwise, he provides that daily bread for his people. Do we truly hunger for God like this. Give me what I need for today. If you don't give it to me, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to make it. I need your provision for me. And it's not just physical food, but it's the daily bread of being in his presence. And so does, Jesus desires the kind of prayer that reflects that, that tunes our heart to daily depend on him to provide us with all that we need. He continues in verse 12, point four. Jesus desires the kind of prayer that tunes my heart to recognize my indebtedness. It's one thing to be in debt, but it's a totally different thing to not even know it. Right? Do we recognize how indebted we are? And this is the self-examination that we talked about last week that there's so many ways in which we can pass off our sin 
as righteousness. And God is saying, I desire the kind of prayer that reflects that you understand that you are not deserving of my mercy, that we don't go to the extreme of either being ignorant of it or that we don't go to the other extreme of just denying it. I'm good. I'm cool. And we have that tendency to waver between both of those. Don't deny the fact that there is sin internally. And so this is a plea for God's mercy. Point number five. Jesus desires the kind of prayer that tunes my heart to recognize the horizontal component in my relationship with God. And this is in verse 12, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. What I find interesting about that statement is that it assumes that you've already forgiven your brother or your sister before you go to God. And it's really saying in proportion to how you forgive others, you will be forgiven by God. My my God, mercy on us. The way that we forgive others, that we ask God to forgive us in proportion to that? Help us, Lord. Help us. Matthew chapter 22 puts it this way. What is the greatest command? To love, the God, to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. God desires the kind of prayer that's reflective of the mercy that we've received from him, that we extend that to others. And finally, point six. Jesus desires the kind of prayer that tunes my heart to recognize my need to be protected from myself and from the evil one. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That Jesus desires the kind of prayer that tunes my heart to recognize my need to be protected from myself and from the evil one. Temptation is not always a bad word. And actually, the word in the Greek in this verse could actually be used in either context, either an enticing to sin or it could mean a proving. And we know that from Scripture that God does not tempt us to sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 reads, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So don't get it twisted. Do not get it confused. God does not tempt us with evil. What God does do is that he does allow us to go through trials. And so similar to a coach who is working with a particular athlete that allows this athlete to go through a grueling practice or he says, I'm going to allow you to compete against this top competitor 
for the coach's purposes, he allows the athlete to endure that trial, to bring out of him, to develop certain characteristics, certain traits. That's what God does with us. And we read about this a couple weeks ago in, in Justin's sermon, that there are times where God does allow us to endure certain trials, but that is for our development. And so Jesus is part of this prayer where he's talking about leading us not into temptation, but delivering us from evil is really getting at the fact that there are certain trials or temptations that Satan would want for us to fall into. And the trials that Satan has us to fall into are for our destruction. And so the part of this prayer is for us to pray that we not be led into those trials and to be delivered from the temptation that he brings because the only thing that he's trying to bring about is our destruction. And so through prayer, our hearts become exposed to God's transforming presence. And he tunes our hearts toward his. He reorients our heart towards his heart. There is no magical power in saying what we call the Lord's Prayer here. No magical power. It's not like, you know, if you read this prayer, then all of a sudden, boom, you know, everything is going to be done. Prayers are only effectual when the words we say correspond with our state of heart. And this would be no different than the people described in Matthew chapter 15 where God says that these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Whatever proceeds from our heart in prayer by way of our words needs to correspond with the state of heart. It's more than just reciting a prayer. And so in closing, I have a couple thoughts. Number one, prayer is a two-way conversation. Prayer is a two-way conversation. If your voice is the only voice that we're hearing when you pray, be careful. God speaks through prayer. And we need to allow God's space to speak. We need to allow God the space to speak to our hearts. And we need to be attentive when we pray. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And I think this is talking about this chatter in God's presence. Who do not know that they do wrong. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When you come before God in prayer, yes, you can speak. Absolutely. But also make sure that you're silent so that you're listening to the voice of God when you pray. Thought number two. God has designed prayer to be a means for us to enter his joy. When Jesus was talking to his disciples in John chapter 16, he says this, 
John chapter 16, verse 24. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be made complete. God the Father loves his children, and he answers prayer. John 15 also says it this way. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And a couple verses down in verse 11, he says this, I have told you so that your joy may be that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. God desires our joy. And God knows that our deepest joy can only be found in his presence. God desires that we experience this joy. And prayer is a means whereby he's able for us to experience the joy that he has for us. Thought number three. From places of brokenness, prayers of faith emerge. Sometimes the difficulty that God has us to face is for the purpose of drawing out of us what otherwise would not come out. And some of us may be going through some really, really tough seasons of difficulty, whether it's financial whether it's health, whether it's relational tension, God often uses these difficult situations to draw a certain kind of prayer out of us. And if you're there, you know what I'm talking about. You pray different when you're hurt. You feel it differently. You see God differently. And even within this congregation, I'm sure there are many different stories that can testify to the fact that there is pain and there is discomfort, and there is hurt. And Psalm chapter 34, verse 18 says this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. A contrite heart means a collapsed heart. A collapsed heart. And today, I don't know where your heart is. I don't know if your heart is in a state of collapse. But if you are, know that God hears your prayers. And sometimes those prayers may not even be verbal prayers. You may get in God's presence and you can't even say anything you're so hurt. God is close to you. God is close to the brokenhearted. Thought number four. Prayers according to the will of God are not wasted prayers. Prayers according to the will of God are not wasted prayers. There's a beautiful picture that Scripture paints for this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 reads, first of all, that this is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. My goodness, what a promise. That as we pray according to God's will, he's saying that I'm going to answer. If your heart is aligned with mine, I will answer these prayers. And then the psalmist in chapter 141 says this, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. And so here the psalmist is praying that his prayer would rise before God like incense. And the way that this used to work is that they would keep coals in a, in, in a dish. And then in another coal, they would, uh, in another vessel, they would have incense. And they would take that before the altar, and then they would pour the incense into the coals on the altar, and then that would rise as a sacrifice to God. And so using that picture, look at what it says in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, and this is describing the elders holding these golden bowls of incense. These gold, uh, the golden bowls of incense were full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And in Revelation chapter 8, he further describes it, and he says it this way, that another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in the front of the temple, uh, the, the throne, sorry. Then the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hands. And so here we have a beautiful picture of the prayers of God's saints being offered to God as a sacrifice. When you pray according to God's will, God not only hears you, but that is an offering to God. And God is pleased with that. So today, I simply want to encourage you. I want to encourage us that through prayer, God realigns our hearts towards his. That our affections that often can get out of tune because of the stresses of life, because of all of the things that we carry, that God actually is able to tune our hearts toward his. And he reorients our hearts and our minds toward his as we offer ourselves and sacrifice to him. I want to encourage us that wherever we are in our prayer life, that God does something in our hearts to expose us to his presence and to transform us there so that we go beyond mere words, but that our hearts are actually drawn closer to God. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.